I've been in university for, for, you know, almost 20 years, 15, 20 years, and was always surrounded by interesting people to talk to, had lots of interesting projects to work on. And then when I became a consultant, the thing that I craved the most was just um, finding someone to go to lunch with. And I think that that situation is is emerging en masse at the moment, and the need to be in the same place at the same time, at least some of the time, is the thing that's going to be the saving grace of any collaboration or any innovation capability that that that's emerged over the decades. And we um, we're just going to have to be much more let's say, mindful about uh, what we mean by mindfulness, because um, in its current form, mindfulness is indeed useless in a, pa- in, a pa- in a pandemic. So my guest today is Jeff Jones. Jeff is an entrepreneur, digital transformation executive, a one-time professor of interaction design at Cle- Queensland University in Australia, He is the co-founder of a really interesting company based in Australia called Collective Social Intelligence. Um, Jeff got into the whole field of bringing technology, design, human beings together in the late 80s in New York. And I think I would put today's episode on the whole subject of collective social intelligence and designing for an information overload world using visual design. I put this into one of the more exotic, um, but I I think really interesting uh, categories that we've had. Um, Jeff and I, perhaps because of our age, is quite similar knew a few people in common, like Stuart Brand, who founded the Whole Earth Catalogue, which led to, people say, to a a kind of paper version of the internet before the web. Uh, The Media Lab at MIT, uh, Jaron Lanier, one of the early pioneers of virtual reality. And we had a great conversation that also looked at what can the world of COVID learn from the world of AIDS, HIV, what is going to happen as the world of work and its physicality starts to move into a post-pandemic world. And I think if you want to um, allow your mind to kind of wander, this is a great episode to, to listen to. And I think Jeff is a really eloquent a communicator of quite complex concepts and like me feels that the world of data visualization of taking the world of spreadsheet led word based information and turning it into something a lot more textured and to help us understand the worlds that we work in and the organizations that we work in better i think this is a great episode so now for jeff jones nice to talk to you jeff um great to be here with you today so often i find that when i'm interviewing people i kind of 
maybe it's my nature or maybe it's human nature, I, I sort of put them into kind of categories and try and allocate them to a place within the sort of lexicon that I use to try and understand the world. And, and with you, I've really, in a, in a, in a very sort of intriguing way, failed to do that. So I couldn't, I couldn't kind of articulate exactly what it was that you'd been involved in and were doing, but I found it all extremely interesting. And also your uh, background in interaction design, um, your time as a management consultant, your involvement with knowledge management, um, the work that we'll get into with collective social intelligence. But so when you're talking to somebody um, who knows nothing about what you do, how do you describe what you do? We usually talk about collaboration, innovation, and visualization. So if we go way back, I mean, so you've seen, clearly you've seen some of my biography on LinkedIn, but if you go way back, I was the first software developer to be hired in a museum. And I worked at the the American Museum of Natural History in New York for five years and the New York Hall of Science for five years. And we were, we were engaged in interpreting science using animation and visualization. So I was the, the first person, for instance, to take Jim Hansen's global warming animations or global warming images from his work at um, Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which was, you know, above Tom's Restaurant, which is that restaurant featured in the Seinfeld show in, in New York. And, and that was right at the time when the first IPCC study came out. So I don't know what year that was, but it was, let's just say it was a while ago. So the way to make what we do tangible is by talking about visualization. And and, and just before you get into the a, a bit more of an explanation, can you just, ex, let's, let's just sort of go back because I find this really intriguing. So you were, an, you were a software designer, an exhibition software designer for the New York Hall of Science from 1987 to 1990. So how does somebody end up in software design and end up within the, the kind of museum sector in in the late eighties, when they weren't the most digital of of um, places, and you ended you you then went to the American Museum of Natural History as a software designer. So it wasn't just a. So how did how did that happen? Well, I was a a master student at the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU in what's known as the Interactive Telecommunications Program. So often they describe themselves as art school for engineers or engineering school for artists, you know, depending on which which angle you come from. So this was a place where you were exploring what was then called physical computing, for instance. So where you were making circuits and making, you know, devices other than the mouse to interact with um, the computers with. So it was in a, it was at a time when... The MIT Media Lab was doing this, NYU was doing this, and, you know, a few other places. So there's the Human Interface Technology Lab at the University of Washington. There was a time when people were just first starting to experiment with the whole notion of human interaction, not with computers, but with each other through computers. And the head of the program, a woman named Red Burns, she was just out there all the time talking to people and making sure they understood what she was about, what we were doing. And the person who hired me at the New York Hall of Science, a man named John Driscoll, who was an artist, went to one of her seminars and 
and asked about this whole notion of human interaction and using computers for learning, blah, blah, blah. And somehow finger got pointed at me and I basically ended up in what was a basement in the, in the hall of science for a few years working on. So we did the biology of AIDS. We did the biology of the immune system. We did the physics of color and light and those kinds of things. So it was really explaining science to the general public using computers. Was this the sort of thing that you somebody would have seen when going to the New York Hall of Science or in London, the Museum of Science, and where you're kind of looking at sort of um, digital renditions of things in the natural world? So you mentioned AIDS. Um, was it, Is that what you were creating? Yeah, well, I mean, everything we were doing was very, very stylized because we were trying to explain some some complex science. And that wasn't easy, especially with a topic like AIDS. I mean, we really, so the whole notion of collective social intelligence started for me back then because we had to be hyper aware of what parents thought, of what schools thought, of what the media thought when we were covering a topic like AIDS for what was going to be an audience of school kids. And being connected to the community, the the very broad community in that way was really important because we wanted people to understand the science. But at the same time, we didn't want to show anything that might have been a bit risque or we didn't want to show the kinds of things that parents didn't want to expose their kids to. And, And in fact, that very topic is the sort of thing that you really don't want your kids to be exposed to that early in life anyway. But it was a kind of a necessity and we had to do it because like this pandemic we're in now, the HIV was very serious and it was becoming like a pandemic and it was something that people, people needed to know about and understand. And the earlier the better it was what we thought in those days especially in relation to to hiv and aids and and i suppose it's similar now you know the earlier the better and we need information we can trust and we need to get it from people that we can trust and so really i mean i i wrote a book called collective social intelligence and i cover this in the book a little bit but the, this whole idea of being you know hyper connected to the broader community so that you know basically where they're at. Know your audience is, you know, one of the things that you have to do in any communication discipline. You know your audience. And when we were covering those sensitive topics, we really needed to make sure that we didn't we didn't offend anyone. We didn't say the wrong things. Just thinking about that, um, I mean, do you see parallels between the the, the rise of, of COVID and the rise uh, of, of the AIDS virus and were the things that you learned during that period that could be helpful for us now, apart from the obvious things that, are, are, you know, that we're, we're aware of from, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, et cetera, are there, are there ways of helping build understanding that, that come out of that age period? Because I can remember the period when age was around in the, in the eighties and, um, Actually, it's sort of really in my mind at the moment, because I don't know if you've watched The Crown, the latest series of The Crown, no, but but Princess Diana in that, there's a kind of remarkable thing where she goes to, uh, on the first visit on her own, without Charles to New York, and 
she decides she's going to go to one of the poorest hospitals in the Lower East Side. And, and she goes into a unit. And in the unit, there are young children with AIDS. Yeah. And she's looking at this young boy in a bed and she hugs him. And of course, that was a seminal moment. You know, people still remember that as, as one of those moments where a something that was perceived to be a taboo was kind of broken through and, and was such a transformational moment. So I'm just wondering, um, I'm just sort of putting myself at a, sim- a similar time with your work there. Is there any, any, any things that we can apply today that we're not doing? Well, absolutely. The whole notion of just facts, you know, let's, let's just talk about facts for a minute, right? So that transformational moment you're talking about, so there was this notion that it was basically homosexuals and and drug addicts. They were the ones who were the ones who were contracting AIDS, and so there was a, almost a kind of well, so what if it's just them? Which we, we never felt, and we knew better than that. And so that that transformational moment when it happened meant that we had to make sure that we were a telling the truth and b telling the truth in a way that our audience and our public could understand. And that particular problem, that, that was, that was easier back then because we didn't, we didn't have this thing called the internet, which is in my view transformed into almost, um, you know, a digital landfill because it's full of people who, you know, just say things that aren't true (laughs) and sorting through what's true and what's not true is really, really difficult right now. And you can't go out into the public and tell people that um, the fact is about this pandemic is ABC. You know, these are the facts. Because somebody's been on Facebook and they've seen a doctor talking about the pandemic in a way that just is completely false, but, but believable. And so the the difficulty is in actually finding the truth and telling the truth and finding information you can trust. And, you know, trust, and if I, you know, use my my terms from collective social intelligence, you're going to be able to trust the information. You can identify with it. You can commit to doing something. You you learn to do that something. And then out of that is an outcome or or something that, that you create, which is helpful to to yourself and others. And I think that's the, that's the, the parallel with all those years ago and today is that value chain of trust through to identity, commitment, learning, and creativity has been broken. And the, the reason I'm committed to CSI is because I'd like to fix that. And I think it's something that desperately needs to be fixed because it is absolutely broken because of the way that things transpire on the internet. You know, I watch three different, four, sometimes four or five different news stations in a given day because I, I'm not sure which one's real. And so the only way for me to, to figure out what the truth is, is to sort of at least triangulate my information sources and make sure that I get the I want the perspective of the person 
who's giving the alternative facts as much as I want the, the perspective of the person who's giving the real facts because it helps me understand the depth and breadth of the whole problem of trust, identity, commitment, learning, creativity, and um, helps me figure out, you know, what, what's, what's my next blog post going to be about or what's my next pitch going to be to the client I'm about to talk to, you know, having the, the information about the world both in its true form and its alternative truth form uh, is really important, but it's just difficult. It's very, very hard. And the parallel is that, except it's been exponentially, it's just exponentially harder than it was because back then we had scientists and we believed them for the most part and we could tell the truth. Yeah. And, and, and this, this, in, this interact intersection between technology and interaction and human beings and that kind of seminal work because you know when you were talking about what you were doing at the new york hall of science and the american museum of natural history i wrote down just before you said it the media lab at mit and i've just um written a, a blog post which is my seven favorite business books and one of the favorite ones on the list is um, the media lab Stuart by Brand, Stuart yeah. Brand. Awesome book. And so, I, and, and presumably you were interested in people like him and the Whole Earth Catalog and yeah. people like Jaron Lanier. Yeah, um, well, I call um, him Jaron Lanier, but the, he, um, he and I both taught at, at NYU for a while. So, Wow, okay. Because he, he's, you know, obviously the person who invented virtual reality or was one of the pioneers of virtual reality and is now in favor of, uh, for all good reasons, a kind of reimagining of, of the, of the internet, almost like a, a re-empowering of people with the, with the ownership of their own data. When I talk about collective social intelligence, that's pretty much what I mean is, so we, we, in, in terms of the management consulting, which you mentioned before, we have a methodology for creating what we call effective collaboration. So it's, you know, a 12 point plan basically that covers off everything from strategy and scope. And if you go, you know, basically around the the spider chart of how we measure things, you end up at workplace and IT systems or computer systems, which is where we go to interact with each other. You know, we go into the real world or into the virtual world to interact with each other. And it, um, to a, you know, a normal person, normal worker, it just looks like another one of those management fads that um, the executives have brought in to, you know, to inflict on the, the the working population. So we took the whole idea of CSI or collaboration and turned it into CSI and came up with 12 things that were much more personal, much more about life and how do you engage in things that you want to do that are meaningful how does that turn into a sort of a plan for yourself? And how does that ultimately transform into the way that you act and interact in the real world? And then how does that translate into the way you act and interact in the virtual world? Just um, explain what you mean by collective social intelligence. I appreciate you've, you've touched a bit on it, but it's, it's a really intriguing title that. And, 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 I'm, and then, of course, I started trying to understand the services and the products. And that was also really intriguing. I, I could do with, you know, an example maybe from the, 
from uh, well just start off by explaining what you mean by the concept of collective social intelligence that you feel was in as was being born in the late 80s well there's so there's five we what we call five elements and then um sort of uh, five pillars and and what i call 12 elements and the pillars are trust identity value or commitment and learning and creativity and they all they all inter interrelate so the idea of being able to trust people or trust information is important, which allows you to identify with them and maybe a wider group, which then gives you the wherewithal to make a commitment to doing something. And then if you don't know exactly what that something is, you've got to do, do some learning. And that learning eventually results in creating or innovating or, or some kind of an outcome. So collective social intelligence is encompassed in that value chain of a way of thinking, if you will. And then the 12 elements relate to, you know, why am I here? What's meaningful to me? Um, you know, who do I need to help me? What do I know? What am I competent at? Do I need some training? What do I want to be recognized for? How do I get specific about what I'm doing? How how am I going to be remembered? And then ultimately that adds up to how do I interact with people in the real world and how do I interact with people in the virtual world? And it starts with ideas about belief and then you go from belief to knowledge and then to clarity to some confidence in what you're doing, some certainty that what you're about to do is going to make a difference and then the courage to just do it. So the whole concept of collective social intelligence is very much about um, a personal introspection that results in a real world outcome and some, some level of transcend transcendence from where you are now in your own thinking to um, where you arrive when you, when you go through the process. And we all go through this process over and over again in our lives. You know, we start with this belief that we can do something and we end with um, the courage to, uh, to, to do it and to be recognized and, you know, seem to have made a difference to ourselves and to a wider group of people. So collective social intelligence, in, in my view, is bringing that process and that way of thinking back to the world because I think we've lost a lot of it. We've lost a lot of our ability to connect socially and when we do connect socially, it's sometimes in a way that maybe we wouldn't do if we were face to face. Or there are some things that people say and do on Facebook or Twitter or whatever that um, they wouldn't say or do if you were actually in front of the person face to face. And that, that, that issue has gotten to be so big because technology is so ubiquitous that um, a lot of our, uh, you know, a, a lot of those social skills um, aren't even being learned anymore. And, you know, then we've got the whole thing of kind of being spied on or being subjected to surveillance constantly so that, you know, someone can manipulate us into buying something or, or doing something that maybe we'd, we wouldn't have thought of doing. And what, what kind of problem... Do people, when, when, when organizations are saying, 
we've got a problem because they come to external advisors, external consultants, either because they see an opportunity, they can't realize a problem that they, they need to address. How do they, how do they express that to you? And could you give me an example? We create what we call collaboratories. So I spent many years working in universities and where a university will have a laboratory for, for one thing or another that's, you know, generally used to, to do science or to do some sort, of, some sort of study that's usually seen as esoteric by the outside world. So we um, early on realized that companies wanted their own version of a laboratory and they wanted it to be a place where people could come together and collaborate and innovate and, and do things differently. So we actually built one of these collaboratories for the, the first really big one we built was in 2007, and we did it for a gold mining company. And the purpose of it was to basically bring geologists and engineers together early in the process because we, we had been discussing this idea of reconnaissance through rehabilitation, which is basically the entire life of a mine. So the mine has to be rehabilitated back to some some level of its original natural form when it's finished, but then somebody has to go out and do reconnaissance in a basically a greenfield in order to, you know, let's say find that certain plant or that certain kind of rock formation that's going to indicate that there might be gold in the ground. So we um, we said, well, if you engage in collaboration in a way where you're classifying information and you're using visualization, we can get your geologists and your engineers working together better and faster. And better and faster means that it's going to take six years to create and start running a new mine rather than 12. So the idea was to cut the time in half, basically the time to, um, let's say, in that corporate sense, the, the time from investment to profitability, we wanted to, cut by, we wanted to cut it in half. So the collaboratory we built had a massive curved, you know, 15, meter by, 15 meters wide by three meters high screen that visualized the entire process for all the mines that they were running around the world. So it allowed them to do some level of remote operations, mainly so that they could learn from each other and that the, the very few really experienced geologists and really experienced engineers could be part of any conversation at any time. And we could make it as social as possible by putting people in this visualization, this immersive visualization space. So it's um, a bit different than virtual reality because we were actually showing the entire value chain for the different operations that were going on around the world and immersing people in the operation, not just immersing the person in a particular visualization, but, you know, stepping through. And then their board of directors every year were exposed to a two day program of visualization where, geologists, the business development person and the engineer, they all got up and did different parts of a presentation for every single operation. And this gave this board confidence because they were seeing things rather than hearing things in words. Not only that, but they were seeing this collaboration going on because there were these three people from completely different disciplines 
standing up there talking about the same thing and making sense of it using visualization. And it just, you know, so they, when we started with them, they had 272 projects and I don't know how much they were, they were spending, but um, two years later, we, uh, we cut that down to about 48 and they were spending four times more or they were investing four times more because they had more confidence. So again, this, this in a, in a, in a corporate world, this, time to profitability was was dramatically increased but not only that we we not only did we in, increase the amount of time that it was taking or decrease the amount of time that it was taking we also decreased the um the uncertainty in the whole way of explaining a business case that way of thinking and that way of working translates really well across a lot of different industries so we've done similar things for property owners for healthcare for we we did the the G20 visualization in 2014 when it was here in Australia so the whole notion of showing things in order to create a more productive conversation that leads to an outcome quicker is first of all what we mean by collaboration and then taking those 12 points of collaboration, we transform them into 12 elements of a more personal way of looking at how do I perceive myself in a, in a, in a world that's layered. So I'm a person, I work in a company, the company works in a country, the, you know, the countries in the world, obviously. So that, that's, that's like an onion, right? It's, um, um, you know, the spider charts that we generate around collaboration and CSI are we call the ogre, you know, we could, from the from from Shrek, you know, ogres are like onions. Well, the the whole concept of CSI and collaboration and taking a, a more personal look at it is multi-layered and, and being able to see yourself at the center of your own universe and at the same time understand the effect you're going to have on the groups of people that are around you at various levels is is important and it's more important than ever because that self-perception as well as the outward projection of who you are is what gives you the confidence to go out and do new things. It's what gives you a better life and that's what allows you to make a contribution to improving someone else's. Yeah. And, and it sounds like I put down, this is like the opposite of PowerPoint. So, you know, is it that you're kind of taking a, in a way, looking at an organization, you're saying, look, that this particular company had, you know, 250 plus different projects. There's a lack of kind of confidence where to focus. There's, there's an overwhelming amount of information, knowledge, understanding, different levels of trust. And this is kind of flowing through every organization. And it's, it's, it's bewildering. It's overwhelming. Um, and, and by, What's coming to my mind is I, I had a visit, well, I've been at a visit a few times to the research lab at Microsoft's headquarters at Redmond, where an awful lot of things are are, are visualized. And, and I've always, I've been so kind of drawn towards data visualization. You know, if you look at the numbers in a spreadsheet, it's one thing. If you then visualize that data, and the media does quite a good job of this sometimes, you know, it, it gives you a different experience. But do you see the ability to kind of create new ways of rendering information and knowledge as, as a way of making and helping an organization makes making sense of 
what's happening and where to where to focus because that's what's what's coming to, coming to me it's absolutely essential visualization is 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 absolutely essential to all things related to knowledge and improvement right so when you let's say start a consulting engagement with a company there's a whole lot of beliefs that people have about each other and about the projects they're they're working on there are pockets of knowledge that are not particularly interrelated which you know creates a lack of clarity and that creates a lack of confidence and creates uncertainty and sometimes it means that people just don't do things as quickly if at all so they don't have the courage to to do things so we've got to go from belief to courage very quickly in terms of getting people to understand where the knowledge is and acquire it or where the knowledge is and access it and that puts some clarity and some confidence around you know doing that next thing doing that innovation doing that working on that project um and ultimately all of it if it if it all relates somehow to visualizing let's just say visualizing the business case in a very general terms the um the uncertainties are reduced and the the courage to act and get something done goes up at, at the same time and that just means you are actually doing things that you know will have the result that you're aiming at yeah i mean i mean one of the things i'm i'm thinking about is that so many organizations right at the moment are overwhelmed by let's just call it the events of this year and the way that it's unhinged the ways that they work the places that they work in and they're trying to work out and this is going to become much more of an issue in the early months of next year Um, so we're recording this in december 2020 when they're trying to work out how as we can emerge from the if you like the firefighting around the pandemic what kind of workplaces, what kind of world do we w- of work do we want to create for ourselves? And I'm just wondering how these ways of visualizing, of in a way synthesizing information, et cetera, could help an organization with what can seem overwhelming challenges, particularly because I've spoken to CEOs of major organizations who haven't met a colleague at all for six months. Yeah, that's that's pretty awful. So one of our one of our mantras, I suppose, is that in the same way as healthcare workers are, you know, essential and at the front line for the um, the health implications and the medical implications of this pandemic, knowledge management and collaboration professionals should be the next group that become those frontline essential workers because that's the next thing that's going to be essential for, for economic recovery. We, 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 you know, we're doing things on the basis of advice about, you know, advice from, let's say, the, the health departments of our governments. The next thing we need to do is work on the economic recovery element. So the, the idea that uh, knowledge management professionals and collaboration professionals, we should, we should become the healthcare workers for the economy. And what that translates into for us, for instance, is, you know, just thinking purely right now in economic terms. So every square meter of workspace should be formulated around collaborative work groups. 
And not only is that going to increase the the annual rate of return um, for a property owner, but it's also going to give the occupier of that space a clearer path towards growth and profitability if that's what they're working on. So what that means is that in a, in a collaboration sense is that owners and occupiers have to work together to create fit for purpose offices that foster collaboration, just to put it kind of simply, but still um, in, in generic terms. And that's a different way of working. You know, normally you have a landlord tenant relationship rather than an owner occupier collaboration. So one difference is the way we fit spaces out so that they are better integrated in terms of the design and the technology. That's, that's one thing that's, that's going to be different. I think we're also going to see more of a hub and spoke network emerge where people will continue to work at home if they can. They're going to want to and or need to meet with small groups of their colleagues. So we, we, I think we'll see the emergence of small suburban and rural offices. And then the, the head office will be the, the hub of a whole lot of spokes that are small suburban offices and, and then the home office. And that's going to require the use of this technology and the use of visualization to, to communicate, you know, because at the moment you, um, you turn up to a zoom call and that's, that, um, that's proof that you're working, but it's actually not <laughs> the proof that you're working is um, showing what you're working on and showing that you're making progress on, on whatever objectives you might be aiming at. Mm. And does that, does this mean that, and I completely agree with you, um, one of the things that that we issued earlier in the year was the Decade of Courage Manifesto. And one of the points in that was kind of workplace pods close to where people live, where they could meet with other people from the organisation. Because I think the, the solution to where we are is not ongoing massive levels of homeworking. It's, it's being proximate to where you live but with other people. And and I just wonder whether in that model that you pre- presented of the very highly collaborative um, hub, the spokes, the work from home, um, are, are organizations structured wrongly um, to, to work in, the, in this way? And is this, does this require a sort of redistribution of what we might call power across the organization? Well, the redistribution of power is going to happen whether anyone likes it or not. So we're now, we, where we used to always talk about, let's transform your organization from command and control to collaboration and trust. And you can be in charge, but that just makes you an influencer when you're in, environment, in, in an environment of collaboration and trust. Now the environment of collaboration and trust has been forced on us and no, organizations are not prepared for this, and they need to be prepared to be influencers rather than, you know, sort of dictators in the, in, in a, just, just to try and put it in, into simplistic terms. The collaboration and trust is, is, is a very real now. People are interacting with each other without anyone knowing that it's happening. And if organizations don't figure out 
or senior management in organizations don't figure out how to be influencers rather than direct, you know, rather than directing traffic, that's, um, that's going to, that's, that's what's going to break things. And some, some, I think some organizations are figuring it out. There's enough of the awareness of people wanting to continue to work from home. At the same time, there's also enough awareness that at least small groups are going to need to get it get together, whether for actual work or simply for, let's call it well-being, for lack of a better term, that social interaction is absolutely vital to, to getting anything done. And if you don't have that, you, you know, you, 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 at worst case, you develop some mental health issues. Um, you know, second worst case, you don't get the work done that you're meant to get done. So I think organizations are going to have to really get their head around what it means to be fully distributed. That's going to bring privacy and security into the foreground much more firmly. And it's going to mean that the, the way, so the way technology is used in terms of how ubiquitous it is, it's, it's you know, basically manipulating people into to buying things. So you, um, you're tracked and traced and basically sort of spied on because that's what sells ads. And that's where, you know, companies make their, you know, the technology companies make their money through advertising and it's through manipulating people. And we need to move from manipulation to motivation in order to, you know, solve for, um, I think where we're going to end up with this, the effects of this pandemic. Yeah, I just wondered, you talked about economic recovery and this idea of knowledge managers and, and, and other kind of, kind of leading professionals being, if you like, the key workers in the economic recovery. And it made me wonder whether, I mean, a lot of people have talked about, let's recover better. Let's not just recover. And, and I wonder, I wondered what the, the, what's the opportunity to recover economically? And in my mind, to get back to what the word economics means, an eco means home and nomics means management. So it really means the management of home. And actually, it's become the management of money. And and we obviously need to recover financially, if you like, with the narrower definition of economics. But I think there's a growing appetite to recover a broader and, if you like, healthier level than that i just wonder what your thoughts are around that question yeah well look so one of the one of the things that i came across while i was preparing for this which maybe cuts a in a slightly in a slightly different way and the title of an article in some publication some online publication that's that's put out by the economist uh mindfulness is useless in a pandemic and um, the idea that living in the present has never felt more overrated. And, you know, if you're working in, I mean, it, 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 for instance, it's, it's, it, for a while it was, it, for us here in, in Melbourne, in Australia, it was basically illegal to go to dinner. <laughs> and so the whole, you know, living in the present mindfulness, well-being thing uh, just felt like, you know, an, an old luxury of, of the 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 world we were in before the pandemic. I think that the notion of mindfulness needs to be a bit less airy fairy if it's going to be useful in the in the sense that yes, we will be working more from home, we'll be working more from satellite offices, 
and we'll only go into the the hub or the 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 headquarters if we really really need to and so mindfulness becomes something that needs to be a bit more measurable in the sense that as human beings we need we we absolutely need social interaction it's how we're wired and there's no getting past that so getting better at communicating through technology through visualization is really important and then getting together to balance that interaction in the digital world with interactions in the human world is going to be equally important you know the the balance has to be about getting that social connection first and foremost and getting work done it comes in second place because you're not going to get work done unless you, you have that social connection. It's one of the things that I remember about becoming a consultant for the first time. I'd been in university for, for, you know, almost 20 years, 15, 20 years, and was always surrounded by interesting people to talk to, had lots of interesting projects to work on. And then when I became a consultant, the thing that I craved the most was just um, finding someone to go to lunch with. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that that situation is is emerging en masse at the moment and the need to be in the same place at the same time, at least some of the time, is the thing that's going to be the saving grace of any collaboration or any innovation capability that, that emerged over the decades. And we're just going to have to be much more let's say, mindful about uh, what we mean by mindfulness, because in its current form, mindfulness is indeed useless in a, pa- in a, pa- in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and, and the word that, that, that came, to mind, <laughs> came to mind for me when you were talking was <laughs> attention, um, what you pay attention to. And, and, and I, the, the, if you like, my sort of take on mindfulness would be it's really asking us to pay attention to maybe the absence of thoughts or um, the kind of natural world around us, the moments that we're in. But I, but it also made me think that I wondered whether one of the effects, I've certainly found that one of the effects of the this year has been not a sort of greater appreciation of technology, because I think I had that, and it has delivered in lots of ways that were unprecedented, and really important. I think if this pandemic had arrived 20 years ago, we'd have had a lot more problems than we've had, even though the problems have been serious and severe yeah, this time. I agree. But one one of the things that Bill Gates said was what he missed this year was making friends, making new friends. And I thought that's so much true. And I wonder whether we're going to come out of this with a deeper appreciation of what might seem kind of non-productive but really essential social interactions friendship interactions things that people uh what we pay attention to and and i'm also wondering whether you've got any advice for organizations who are trying to if you like plan their way out of this period of i think of 2020 as mainly around firefighting as it's been. And I think 2021 will be more about recovery and reconnecting. And 
I, I, um, reinventing I, is, is another term that I would use. And yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm just thinking. You know, I was talking to a CEO of a, a kind of major company the other day, and they're struggling to work out. You know, how do we kind of think this through? We've got no kind of precedent to refer to. How do we make good judgments? What kind of where do they? How do they, how how might they approach this? Do you think? Well, so just to maybe put it in, um, uh, uh, try and put it in generic terms. So to be effective when you're strategizing and planning, you have to have social connection. And it has to be fostered in a place where you've got uh, physical artifacts and visualization support and you're working in what should become more deliberately formulated collaborative work groups. That's, that's, that's one of the terms that we use is collaborative work groups. And it's particularly key for, and it's going to be more key as we come out of this for any strategic planning and in any any strategy development and in any planning is just not going to be effective unless you have a level of social connection in a in a place where you can use visualization and you're 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 deliberately in this group for reasons that relate to achieving some objectives. And that's going to mean, you know, you want to have the right people in that group. You don't necessarily want to have to call the IT guy in all the time to um, to fix the display. So there'll be a an emergence of a different kind of remote tech support. And even a, what I like to call, a, let's call it a remote curation of the content that's going to be used in, say, a strategy and a planning session. So you'll have a more deliberate need for designers and a more effective remote tech support that can make sure that when you walk into the room with those five or 10 or 20 people that you're going to be working with, that the stuff just works. It's not good enough anymore to have to call the IT guy to plug your computer into the the monitor in the meeting room. It's just not. And um, without having, and, and at the same time, you, you don't want that IT guy there because it's another person that you don't really need in the room. And if we're trying to keep numbers to a minimum, then, you know, who, who are the first people to go? Well, it's generally the support, the support group. So the support staff, the support structures, um, the support me- mechanism, the support processes in an organization are just going to have to transform into being more remote without losing too much of the social element. So usually when you sit down with a designer, you're um, actually sitting down with a designer and talking through what you want. So that talking through what you want has to be social, even though you're not going to be in the same place at the same time. And that's possible. I mean, I was talking very specifically now about the, you know, the types of technologies you might install, the types of office designs that might result from those uh, visualization requirements, the types of office designs that result from deliberately formulating collaborative work groups, all those things are going to influence the way that the the home office, the suburban satellite offices, and the, the hub or the head office are designed and, and used. And it's, it's all very specific stuff. That, so we do a lot of work with architects, for instance, and helping them make sure that I mean, in the, in, the, in the old days of um, 10 months ago, we used to talk about how overconnected we are and that we don't want to get rid of technology, but we do want to be more social 
with each other when we're using it. And that's just become much, much more important. So, you know, it's like the entire world is, you know, for the first time since the industrial revolution is we're all, we're experiencing a state of pain all, all at once, all at the same time. That's the foundation of our current experience coming out of that is going to be, um, working through that disruption, finding new ways of working, um, socializing and interacting. Mm. And I, we had on our 24 hour thing, Michael Mead, who's a sort of world authority in mythology. And he talked about the idea of organizational rites of passage. And if, if, if this, that we're all going through individually has been a, a, a kind of collective rite of passage. As you say, as you say, I've never known in my working life, my life, a, a time where you, everybody you talk to is experiencing some level of, of course, a disruption, upheaval through a, a shared similar event. Pain and pain makes yeah. you angry. And, and one thing that, you know, one thing is it's okay to be angry, you know, just get it out and mm. get rid of it. Don't, you know, it's okay. It's painful. It's a painful time. Get angry yeah. if you have to. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're coming up to time and I, I, this has been a, an amazing conversation, Jeff. So a question, a couple of questions I'd like to close with. One is, are you hopeful for our work future and what, and, and why, or, or if not, why not? Oh, uh, absolutely. I, don't think that this is the first time that we've had to overcome something so disruptive. And it's certainly not the first time that we have found ourselves in a place where we've had to work together to do something. And and I'll just call it make the world a better place for, um, you know, not wanting to sound too cliche, but you know, it's not the first time, right? We, we've done things like, um, put a man on the moon, which, which it was, you know, almost a million people working in constant coordination, collaboration. We can do that. We can, we can deal with the social, the technology, technological, the economic and the polit- political issues that have been disrupted uh, as long as we um, pay attention to the right things. And the, you know, we've, we've spent time, you know, studying this and putting a big report together. We talked to, you know, couple thousand industry people who work in industry um, and, and we're specifically related to um, the workplace and how much more important it's going to become and how many more versions of it we're going to need in order to coordinate and collaborate our way out of this um, this situation and come back in a way that's better than what we had I think it's um, to some extent it's well, it's not a good thing, but it is forcing the issue of cleaning up the digital landfill that we call the internet so that we end up with something that actually has facts, something that we can trust, something that we know if we go to it, we can use the information that's there. And we can use that information that's there to get out of this this disruption that's happened. Yeah, and actually, if you do look at different um, studies of what, communities or, or entities people trust organizations companies don't do too badly actually and and so i would feel that if you're a employer of a large number of people your trust levels and i i have definitely seen 
those improve in in quite a lot of organizations by no means all this year through greater empathy through greater adaptability greater listening and that becomes a real resource coming out of this jeff any final um uh any final things you'd like to share or 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 say before we close out well, just in relation to that comment you're making there about about trust. So if 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 and when, well, I'll say when this hub and spoke infrastructure emerges, it what it means is that companies are going to naturally just become a bigger part of everyone's community, and they're going to be forced to, or they're going to see the rationale and the reasoning behind being more engaged in the community and helping people push through this disruption that's happened. And I think that um, the way we talk about collective social intelligence, the way that you might structure the presentation of yourself in society is is going to be a, a key part of overcoming that disruption. And it's going to be a key part of the way that companies manage people and a key part of how we move away for real from the command and control management structures in organizations to a management that's influencing a, a much greater level of collaboration and trust in the workforce. That's amazing you, you say that because um, we've got a uh, what we call a, a digital nations group hangout tomorrow happening and the subject is all around um, the community impact, the local community impact of distributed patterns of work and what that means. And um, cool. spookily, that's happening, I'll say tomorrow for me, not tomorrow for you, because it's already, you're already in tomorrow because you're in Australia. And, yeah, welcome um, to the future. Yeah, yeah. You see, you got there ahead of We've me We've got the time. pandemic under control. Welcome to the future. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I'm mightily reassured. And um, it sounds like after your brutally harsh lockdown in Melbourne, you, you have got it under control, which is um, you've taken the pain and now you're enjoying the, uh, the, the fruits of that. No, but it's not been- quite. I mean, we've taken the pain of the of the basically the pandemic away, but it's created a whole new pain of um, needing <laughs> now to um, recover economically, which is going to be um, just as hard. If not yeah. Hard. Yeah. It's, it's like whack-a-mole, isn't it? If you, you kind of fix <laughs> one thing, something else, cause it's all connected, isn't it? And, it, and Jeff, it's been a absolute delight and pleasure and fascinating. Um, and, um, and just kind of one random question to end with, do you know somebody or, or, or you follow somebody called Daniel Schmattenberger? No. No? Okay. I thought you'd either say, I completely know him and love him. Don't ask me to spell his surname, but it's Daniel Schmattenberger. He does He does a lot of talks around system design, sense-making. Um, please do um, Google him. I think you'll find him really interesting. Um, oh. And um, But, it, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and, and thank you so much. And, you know, you're in the future, but we'll, we're, we're close behind Oh yes, I'm. I'm. I'm sure that you are. And look, thank you for having me. I um, uh, again, I'm not quite sure how you found me, but I'm glad you did. It's been a it's been a great conversation. Digital Workplace Impact is brought to you by the Digital Workplace Group. DWG is a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking, and boutique consulting services. 
For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com.